An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're honored to have Daniel Roy, one of the finest close-up magicians in the world, and an expert card manipulator. He's performed on Penn & Teller's Fool Us and at Hollywood's Magic Castle, two of the premier, even I would say iconic, performance spaces for a magician. He's won the Milburn Christopher Award for Close-Up Magician of the Year. But Dan is also an astute student of neurobiology. His understanding of the psychology of deception is deep. In fact, perhaps more impressively than performing on Penn & Teller, at the Magic Castle, he's actually presented at the American Neuropsychiatric Association's annual conference. And that's something we'd like to explore since investing is so often about our beliefs and sometimes our ability to self-deceive. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much for the, uh, the kind words. I'm really uh, looking forward to chatting about all this. Well, let's start at the beginning. What's your origin story? I mean, interesting people often have had interesting lives. How did you become the person you are professionally and personally? Mm, yeah. So I got into magic when I was about 10. I think like any little kid, maybe when I was seven or eight, I had a magic kit that I played with for a week or two and got bored of. But when I was 10, I uh, volunteered at a fundraiser for the preschool that I had attended. They, they held a fundraiser every year. And I think the theory was, oh, if we have our cute little, you know, 10-year-old alumni come back, then people, you know, donate more money or whatever. And it was this, this uh, big warehouse in San Francisco, kind of concrete floor space, very cavernous. And I got stationed at one of those mechanical bull things. I don't know if you've ever heard, seen those before, but you like try to get on. It's like a rodeo bull, but it's a machine and you try not to get bucked off. Now, obviously as a 10 year old, I can have no meaningful involvement with this because like obvious legal concerns. So I was pretty bored, but luckily the um, guy who was operating the uh, machine, he was a magician and he performed some magic uh, for me to uh, keep my attention throughout the evening. And Previously, I'd seen magic done on stage and I love stage magic. I enjoy watching it, but I'd always had this nagging feeling in my mind when I was um, watching it, which was, ah, maybe if I was closer or maybe if I could examine the props, I would, I would see how it was done. Now, of course, when stage magic's done really well, you won't figure it out by being closer or examining the props, but it was always kind of the suspicion in the back of my head. But when I saw this magic, it was like right in front of my face. I mean, inches from my eyes with props that I'd examined. So it was a very visceral experience of wonder that I had. And that really sparked my interest. So I went to the local magic shop and I really impressed upon the owner, despite the fact that I was 10, I said, you know, I, I made it clear that I was really interested in learning sleight of hand magic and I didn't just want like a trick prop or something. So he sold me a book on sleight of hand called Card College, the first volume of the five volume set, which is sitting over there on my shelf. And the original copies I got when I was 10 and I just fell in love practicing, you know, 
especially when I was younger, 10, 11, 12, like eight, 10 hours a day more on the weekends. Cause you know, you're a little kid. It's like, it's not like you have anything better to do when you come home from you know, fourth grade or whatever. So that was the, the origin of initially getting into magical. Obviously it's taken different forms these days. Is any of it hereditary? I mean, legend has it that your great grandfather won a restaurant in Wolf Point, Montana in yeah. a poker game. A, yeah. is that true? And B, did he do it legit or did he have card manipulation skills? Yeah, it is true. It's one of those stories that is so like wildly perfect for like, like I tell it in performances. Sometimes I, I relate the story and I've got a whole routine that I built around it and everything. And it's one of those things where I have a really hard time convincing people that this is actually a true story, which is so weird because it is a true story. It actually happened. I, uh, a branch of my family lives in very rural Montana in a little town called Wolf Point of like, I don't know, 2,500 people, maybe a little more or less these days. But uh, they, and our family still owns the restaurant, but there's a restaurant on Main Street called the Wolf Point Cafe. And my great grandfather won this restaurant in a Wild West poker game in the early, I think, late 1800s or early 1900s. I forget the exact uh, date. I'd have to go read the um the restaurant's menus used to have the story and all like his whole life story on the back. And then his son took it over. And then I think daughter-in-law took it over. And now it's run by my cousin. And uh, yeah, it, he, he really did win it in a Wild West poker game. We don't unfortunately know the like specifics. So you, I, I don't know what hand he got or whether they were playing stud poker or five card draw. It was probably five card stud or five card draw based on the time period. Those were the forms of poker that were most popular, if I remember correctly. But whether he cheated or won it honestly, who knows? I'm not sure which I would prefer. I mean, on one hand, I'd like it to be an honest, you know, win. But on the other hand, since I'm so into sleight of hand, it would be like, oh, that'd be cool if he was actually a card mechanic. I have absolutely no idea. But some guy in the game bet the keys to his restaurant and my great-grandfather won the hand and now we own the restaurant. So yeah, it, it is indeed a true story. Um, does that have anything to do with how I got into magic? Well, it's hard to say. I, I learned to play cards for the first time. I learned how to play poker for the first time in, in Wolf Point, Montana. I'm not by any means a, a great poker player. I know a lot more about cheating at cards than I do about playing it honestly. But I think that it sort of melded well with my interests. And it was sort of later on, because when you start out in magic, you're just kind of doing the trick. But later on, as I was looking to pull life stories into the magic and try to say something honest and true about myself or my past or something else that I care about, it was just like, this is the perfect story to tell. Now, your particular style of magic is close-up card manipulation, seen it with a camera, eight inches away from your hands and I could not see you pull cards to the middle or the bottom or second or second from the bottom or anything else. It's, it's really quite an incredible skill. What made you choose that as opposed to big illusions or things that require really cool devices or anything else? I think part of it goes back to that initial formative experience of seeing magic done so close to my face and just wanting to, I think. Interestingly, when I had that experience, my response wasn't, I want to experience this more. It was, I want to be able to create this experience for other people. And that, it was like that, I, I don't know where that sentiment came from, but that was just like, it was an incredible feeling, the kind of free fall of just pure wonder, having no idea how this impossible thing occurred. You have a very interesting definition 
of magic that delves mm. into how people think. So let me ask what I hope is not so simple a question, but what is magic? To answer that question, you do have to kind of choose a frame of reference. Like, What is magic emotionally? What is magic, you know, how would your everyday person describe magic, right? And how can you succinctly describe the magical experience, right? And these all require different definitions, but I, I think the most succinct definition to start with is from the late Simon Aronson, a great Chicago magician, also I think intellectual property lawyer. He never did magic professionally, but he's a prolific author and thinker and someone I was very lucky to become friends with before he passed away a few years ago. He described magic as creating the illusion of impossibility, right? And just those like three words, illusion of impossibility is the, the most succinct definition of magic, right? I'm going to do something that seems impossible. You know that it is actually somehow possible. I know it's somehow, po you know, in a performative context, not like someone trying to convince you that they really have powers, but in the context of a performance, it's not real. I know it's not real, but boy, does it seem and feel real to you. So it is, you are creating the illusion of impossibility. I think it's just a beautiful definition. That said, a more technical definition of magic or, or what the required ingredients are is you might say that magic is the difference between an initial condition and the final condition with the impression that there is no naturalistic causal link, which is a mouthful. So I'll say it one more time. Magic is the difference between an initial condition and a final condition with the impression that there's no naturalistic uh, link between them. So to briefly define the terms, Let's imagine that um, I'm doing a, a trick for you and I show you the king of hearts and I put it on the table, right? That's the initial condition, king of hearts. Then I wave my hands and snap my fingers and I turn it over and it's become the ace of spades, right? So of course this won't be uh, visible to the uh, people at home, but let's try with, uh, let me get the king of hearts out of here just so you get the idea. So just for you guys to see initial condition, I start with the king of hearts, right? And then I take the king of hearts, I put it on the table, I wave my hand, snap my fingers, and it turns into the ace of spades, right? So there's your, your trick. You'll have, people listening, you'll just have to take my word for it, but that's what happened. John, did, did the king of hearts turn into the ace of spades? Yes, the king of hearts turned into the ace of spades. The initial condition here is the king of hearts, right? And the final condition is the ace of spades. So uh, a great example is imagine that, you know, I, I showed you the king of hearts and put it on the table. And then someone walked into the room or they joined the call and they hadn't seen the king of hearts. I wave my hands and turn it into the ace of spades and they'd be like, everyone would, you know, presumably applaud and they'd think, what's going on here? Why are these people applauding to this guy just holding up a card, right? They miss the initial condition, which means they don't experience any magic. Similarly, of course, if I showed you the king of hearts and put it on the table and then you left the room, well, if you don't see me reveal that it turned into the ace of spades, no magic, right? And the really important part after that is the idea of a naturalistic causal link with the impression that there isn't one, right? If you see me switch the cards, it's not magical, right? It has to be where it seems like I, I never did any manipulation or sleight of hand and the card transformed. And you have to have experienced the starting point, the king of hearts and the ending point, the ace of spades. So that's a, a sort of a very technical definition of what is required to create a magical moment. But I wouldn't necessarily say that that fully describes the magical experience from the perspective of the audience with the humor and emotion and story and narrative and the coming back to the illusion of impossibility that we were talking about earlier. But that's your very technical definition. So let's go into the psychology of it. Why do you think we humans want so much to believe in things that are impossible that we know aren't possible and enjoy it? 
and we enjoy being fooled. Well, first of all, there's certainly a multiplicity of experience. Some people really enjoy being fooled by a magic trick. Others don't, which is an interesting difference in and of itself. I think you mentioned in the introduction, the study of neuroscience and neurobiology and speaking at a conference for reference, I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia for college and at UPenn, I studied neurobiology there. And that was while I was doing a lot of performing and kind of slowly near the end of college made the transition of wanting to do magic professionally, which is not something I'd considered before. Previously, I was thinking research or medicine, but that was my, my undergrad degree. And so since then, I've written an article about it for a magazine and spoken at uh, that conference, but those were just really fun opportunities and very grateful that I had the, the chance to do those. So it, it, there was sort of a parallel process of learning a lot about the brain and then, you know, starting to think about magic from the perspective of neuroscience. So I think the first thing we have to say to answer the question you posed is by definition, magic happens in your mind, right? Because there's lots of stuff that I'm doing with my hands and whatever, but of course it's, you know, light from my hands, you know, going into your eyes, you know, being projected to your occipital lobe and thalamus and whatever. There's a whole load of sensory information that's coming in and then your brain has to make sense of it, right? There's a whole processing experience that, that happens. And then of course, there's a lot of projection outward because you don't necessarily see reality as it is. You see it as your brain sees it in a way. There's a lot of detail there, but that's an, a broad oversimplification, but it gets the point across. So what I'm trying to do is to trick you into tricking yourself because you know that I'm going to lie to you if you see me perform, right? I'm in a seat in a theater at this place. And this guy's on stage and he's going to lie to us, but it's all in good fun, right? And it's for the purposes of entertainment. There's nothing nefarious about it, right? So you know I'm going to lie to you, which means it's kind of difficult for me to, to deceive you in any way, which means I have to get you to lie to yourself. I have to trick you into tricking, tricking yourself, which means by definition, everything's happening in your mind. So it doesn't happen in my hands. Magic isn't in the cards. It's entirely in, in your internal experience. Um, so. Then the question, of course, is, well, what's the experience that's being created? Why do people enjoy it or not enjoy it or enjoy certain parts, but not other parts? It's a great question. Why do we like the feeling of, of, of being deceived? Well, to be more specific, generally being deceived doesn't feel good, right? Because there are stakes to it, right? Having someone in a relationship or in a business setting lie to you and get away with it. And then you realize that happened. That doesn't feel good, right? Makes you maybe feel embarrassed or, or ashamed or, or what have you, depending on the context. But magic is sort of a, a safe arena in which to explore this kind of thing, right? Because it's maybe a little bit like a, a wrestling match or a chess match in the sense that, right, a wrestling match isn't really like war. Like at the end of the day, I mean, you might be enemies from a competitive sports standpoint, but like you're not like mortal enemies in the sense of war. And it's same in chess, right? Like no one's going to die at the chessboard. It's kind of a safe arena in which to explore some conflict and some competitive, you know, drive, um, a more civilized way of doing so. Magic is sort of similarly an arena, a safe arena in which to explore the ways that we lie to each other and lie to ourselves and deceive each other and how we tell stories that may or may not be true. So I think that's part of it is you get to explore things that might be a negative experience if they happened in the wild, as it were, but you get to experience them in a safe and fun way. But in terms of like, why do we enjoy that experience? Well, I think it harkens back to a very like childlike sense of wonder, right? Where many things in the world did seem mysterious and they did seem, 
you know, larger than life and not everything was, had been explained in granular detail and kind of had the life sucked out of it. I think it harkens back to that experience. It can be very satisfying um, in that sense. I think it can also be satisfying because magic provides an experience that no other performing art does, which is, as I was saying, that sort of childlike sense of, of wonder, which ultimately comes from an internal conflict. You intellectually know that what you've seen is possible, uh, presuming you don't actually believe that I have supernatural powers, which I don't at some level that what I'm doing is there's trickery going on and there's some skill going on in misdirection. But emotionally, if I do my job well, it feels like what you saw is completely impossible. And it's this conflict between the intellect and the emotions that creates, at least in my opinion, that, that um, kind of free fall experience of wonder. Some people have argued that there's something about learning new things to magic, that, that when you experience something you can't explain, it, it's, it's similar to the experience of learning something new. And maybe there's something adaptive evolutionarily about that. I don't think I'm quite familiar enough with the argument that's being made to evaluate whether I agree or disagree with that. That's one theory that's been posited. The other one is, as I was saying, just the idea of childlike wonder. Um, but on the other hand, some people don't like magic. They really don't like the experience of, of being deceived. They really like to know how things work. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that's fine. It's just a different way of experiencing magic from the perspective of the audience. And I think it's equally valid. A lot of my friends in college were engineers, math nerds. They want to know how the tricks work. And, and I don't think that that's a problem if they really try to figure it out. Um, and if I do my job well, they can't figure it out, right? So more of a challenge for me. But I think how people want to experience it, whether they want to just get lost in the narrative and in the story and they don't want to think too hard about how it works or if they really want to try to analyze it and hopefully not be able to figure out uh, how it works, but try, I think that's fine. So those are some theories about why it might be enjoyable for people, but I don't know if there's really a, a conclusive answer out there. What happens when you go into a casino? I mean, I, I know you don't play, but like, do you get reactions from security? I mean, <laughs> do people so, come over and say, Mr. Roy, uh, we don't I, want you touching the cards at all, please? It's funny. I, I have actually once nearly been asked to leave a casino, but not for the cool reason. Um, uh, listeners won't be able to see this, but I am rather unable to grow a beard and despite being 25, have a baby face. Um, the reason I was almost asked to leave is they were like, are you a child? Are you lost? Where are your parents? This was a few <laughs> years ago, but they were like, we need to see some ID to know that you're over 21. I think I was 21 or 22 at the time, but they're like, are you 15? So not the cool reason to be asked to leave a casino. Um, I'm not a card player. Uh, I'm, I'm strangely, I I've been to Vegas many times, but never placed a bet. I know how bad the odds are in, in, in these games, especially in a casino. I mean, I think in blackjack, generally speaking, you have the best odds. If you're really good at counting cards, yes, you can make a kind of a small margin, but most people who count cards don't do it well enough to actually make any money. In other games, your odds are just terrible. Even in poker in a casino, it's hard to make money because there's something called rake where the casino takes is an R-A-K-E, like a garden rake, but there's a certain percentage that's taken out of the pot every so often. And so it cuts into how much money you actually win. There are cameras everywhere in a casino. Uh, very hard to cheat, and they really don't let the players touch the cards much. But also, they're not worried about the players. They're worried about the dealers. What they're scared of is one of their dealers working with a player from outside. And they're worried that they're going to basically funnel money out of the casino to a partner or partners or a whole team and split the money between them. That's what they're really worried about. So the cameras are there primarily to watch their own employees, although watching their patrons is, of course, important as well. Now, that's not to say that cheating a casino isn't possible. It is. I know people who 
do that and have done it successfully. I can't give any identifying information about them, but, but interesting figures, but you know, I, gambling doesn't really have much of an allure for me and cheating in a casino is, is difficult unless you're really good at it. I can't let that go. I'm not going to ask you for names, obviously when it comes to me or even what, how they do it, which you wouldn't tell me either, but why do they confide in you that, you know, people who have cheated in casinos? I think it's because I met them through a mutual acquaintance who was like, this is a trustworthy person. And this is a person who has also practiced the same techniques that you're using. I use them for fun in performance. They use them to actually cheat at cards. And if they see that you have put in the extra five to 10,000 hours to learn these techniques, I've probably put in 20,000 hours of practice over the course of my life into sleight of hand and, uh, what a few of these people do is just unreal when I, it's, it's a really kind of almost mystical experience for me watching their hands. I think they, they are willing to confide in me because they know they can trust me. They know that I'm not going to say anything about them more than what I'm saying right now, um, which is very little. And also that I had put in the time to be able to operate at, at least in their sphere, but not on quite their level. What's exciting to you right now? What's next? What are you passionate about at the moment? So I've been doing magic for roughly 15 years. And so you go through different phases of one thing that's interesting or another thing that's interesting. The virtual world has really changed things, right? You know, we all had to come up with a virtual show close to two years ago now. Well, for me, maybe a year and a half ago, because I graduated from college in 2020. Weird time to graduate. You know, first thing was, how do you make magic work over the camera, right? Uh, over video? How do you make it so that it's not just like watching a YouTube video, right? So you have to have some interaction in it. That's really important. I've got a, I mean, I'm looking at a battle station like setup right now of monitors and multiple cameras and audio equipment and whatever that I put together over the last, you know, two, yeah, one and a half, two years or so that I also use to film all my YouTube videos. And then I got lucky with a YouTube video about a year and a half ago, a video that I made randomly just blew up as like 3 million views or so now. And that's not even a huge success in the YouTube world. That's a small, small fish in a very big pond, but that was enough to help me establish a following on the channel. So I recently I think hit about a hundred thousand subscribers, which was an exciting milestone. I realized I now need to branch out to other platforms because the thing about social media is it's all algorithmic. So just because I have a certain number of followers or views on one platform, that doesn't in any way guarantee that my next video is going to do well, or my next video is going to do well. In fact, the video that initially started my channel, I almost didn't post it because I didn't know if it was good enough, but I'm realizing I have to diversify, right? I can't sort of rest on my laurels just because I've had a teeny tiny bit of success on one specific platform. So I've started posting just within the last kind of two weeks to other platforms like TikTok and Instagram, where your content has to be 60 seconds or less. Whereas on YouTube, most of my videos are between 10 and 20 minutes long. So that's a big change. I wasn't too enthused about the idea of trying to do magic under 60 seconds. I didn't really know if you could do it, but the more I've been thinking about it, it actually is quite an interesting creative challenge, right? Cause there's sort of a, a misconception that myself and many of us have, which is that, well, the, the thing that you need to be creative is lots of options. And actually too many options is paralyzing constraints, not too many constraints, but some constraints really can spark creativity. So if you say invent a magic trick, I'm like, I don't know. But if you say, come up with a magic trick that works in less than 60 seconds filmed vertically and has an exciting hook within the first two seconds so that people will actually watch it. And then you has a payoff on the premise at the end. Well, now it's like, okay, I got to go back to books that I've read before and learn some of those tricks and then see, can I pull out, you know, half of this trick and then condense it to one minute? 
what can I do to shorten this, but still not make it any less impressive? What are these trade-offs? How can I make things visible in a smaller format where it's just vertical and I don't have as much space on the table? It imposes all these constraints, but as I've started to do it, it's actually been really fun to try to take, you know, magic and get it into a format that works similar to like, how do I make magic work virtually in a, you know, virtual show? Uh, how do I make magic work in a 60 second video format has been exciting. So that to me has been really fun, you know, recently. Um, and then the other thing is just continuing to explore the intersections between neuroscience and magic, right? Trying to find the crossovers, think about concepts that in magic that I, you know, always knew they worked, but I didn't necessarily know why they worked and starting to try to understand that, or at least take a guess at uh, why those work at the level of the brain has been, has been quite interesting as well. Can we talk about one of those for a second? Um, you sure. use the phrase inattentive blindness. Yes. Can you explain what that is? Because I think um, it, it, to me, it has a lot of resonance with investors sort of taking their eye off of something and blinding themselves to things. So inattentional blindness, as I, as I best understand it, is basically rather than getting someone to literally physically look away, right? I can get you to look at my left hand and do something with my right hand that is either in your periphery or completely out of your view, right? You're just not gonna see it because you are literally looking away and it's either so far in your periphery or completely behind your visual field, you're just not gonna see it. That's one option. But the other option that I have among, other, among many is what if I want you to not see something that you're staring at? Um, and what I can do is I can turn your attention to something else, even though I'm not necessarily turning your eyes to something else. Great way of doing this is asking someone a question. So if I say, uh, John, are you right or left-handed? You may have to answer that one way or the other. I won't say ambidextrous, but right-handed, yes. Sure. Well, ambidextrous is fine, right? But as long as I'm thinking about answering the question, it works. Precisely. All I have to get you to do is turn your attention inward, right? So a neuroscientist would say this is a form of inattentional blindness. A magician, this was a term coined by my mentor, Darwin Ortiz, is the idea of looking inward versus looking outward. And again, this is sort of the magician's language versus the neuroscientist's language. But the idea is if I can get your attention, if not your eyes, to turn elsewhere, you are much less likely to see something that happens in front of your face, whether that's a, a sleight of hand technique or, or something that I, that I need to, to conceal. So inattentional blindness is a fascinating phenomenon, but it can really open up a broader discussion of how attention works and how attentional capture works. What things can you do to get someone's attention? I think we do have to be a little careful about saying that, that inattentional blindness is like, it, it can be tempting to take an idea in psychology and try to apply it more broadly. It, it is certainly the case that when someone misses something in, you know, some other component of their life, they don't realize something that they should have, or, or, you know, they, they missed something that someone else saw. Certainly the case that something happened in their brain that caused them to do that. There was some cognitive loophole or maybe a bias they weren't aware of, or they were inattentive for whatever reason. That's not strictly speaking inattentional blindness, but philosophically, if not at the level of the brain, it is similar. So I think we just have to, like, it's certainly a valid and interesting discussion to have, but I think it's, it's always important to, I think, understand at which level you're drawing the connection. Are we saying these are analogous because they use the same part of the brain or they operate through the same neural circuit? Or are we saying 
These are analogous because they fall into the same bin of a psychology concept that we've identified, or are we saying these are analogous because philosophically and conceptually they're the same, even if they might be different at the level of the you know brain. So we just have to be careful about exactly how we're drawing that comparison. But it is certainly an interesting and, and relevant comparison nonetheless. Yeah, there's a whole field of behavioral finance about anchoring and biases and things. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to draw the parallel that there, I'm going to use the word manipulated, not in a Perfect. negative sense, but that you can self-deceive yourself with false assumptions. I assume you're going to deal people with, we've all seen people deal cards correctly. If mm -hmm. your prior state was, I have no assumption that he's going to deal from the top. Your trick doesn't work, yep. right? Absolutely. So the, the, the point being that all these things that we regard as magic with no naturalistic causation, uh, we can deceive ourselves as well. We could either turn blind by looking inwardly or have a set of false assumptions or whatever. Right. I'm going to put a card aside. Let's use this one, a card aside. All right. And, um, uh, Daniel is oh. uh, dealing, sh shuffling, or at least apparently shuffling cards on the on a Zoom, which you can't see. Well, no, but, but this is great. Uh, you know, for for you to narrate. So I've I've uh, if you can confirm for everyone, I took a card and I placed it aside, and it's face down right here, and we'll come back to that later. And what I've been doing is I've been shuffling the cards, and I know you're suspicious, having seen some videos. So each time I shuffle, I'll riffle the cards together like you'd see a casino dealer do but I'm spreading them out uh, and then kind of shoving them together so you can see that they're legitimately being mixed. Fair enough? Fair enough. All right, and everything I, I just said is, is indeed what's occurring, right? Yes. All right, I would like you to um, give me a number, say from, um, uh, I don't know, up to 20, any number you want. 17. 17, so I'm gonna deal out with 17 cards. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So if we'd ended up a card uh, lower, nine of hearts, a card higher would have been the nine of diamonds. But we ended up at, okay, five of clubs, five of clubs. And again, could have been any card. I put a card aside at the very beginning. And every card in the deck has a mate. So the mate of the king of hearts would be the king of diamonds. The mate of the four of spades would be the four of clubs. So the mate of the five of clubs would, of course, be the five of spades. And if I've done my job correctly, this should be the five of spades. Indeed. Now, yes, in other words, the card I placed aside at the very beginning matched the card you chose. Now, this is not by any means a great magic trick. I, I made, just made this example up on the fly, but there's a reason I did this. People often think about misdirection as look over here while I do something else over here. And I think the same thing can be true for, for certain biases. But the way I describe misdirection is misdirection is a context and it requires a whole contextual setting. So I... None of what I did in this trick is terribly secret, so I can certainly explain some of it. I knew which card I put aside. I initially put one card aside, and I didn't show it to you, but it was the five of spades. And I knew where the five of uh, clubs was in the deck. And even though it seemed like I shuffled the cards and you named a number and I dealt that number, without going into the weeds of the sleight of hand, I forced the card on you. I manipulated mm -hmm. the cards in such a way that by dealing down to the 17th card, that would be the, uh, the five of spades. Now, it's not that I influenced you to say 17. You actually could have said any number, but using some sleight of hand and other trickery, I was able to make sure that the, the card that we ended up at was the card that would match my prediction. But importantly, I didn't tell you that that was going to happen in advance. In other words, I didn't say, this is a prediction. 
And later on, you're going to choose a card. And then as a result, the card will match the prediction. I didn't say that. And there's a reason. Because if I tell you in advance what this whole selection of a card procedure is going to be, you're going to be very suspicious and you will scrutinize this, right? If you don't know what's going to happen, if you don't know this is a prediction, the card and the number I'm naming is actually critically important to the trick. I better watch this guy deal super closely. If you aren't aware, uh, again, this isn't the greatest example of this in the world, but I think it will somewhat get the point across. If you just aren't aware that that's the significance of what we're doing, you're a lot less likely to pay close attention to it, right? So that's what I mean when I say misdirection is a context, right? I don't exactly tell you where the trick's going. We do a bunch of stuff. And then later on, before I reveal this, I stress the decisions. I say, now, think about that for a moment. You could have said any number from uh, anything from uh, 1 to 20. And you saw me shuffle the cards. And I dealt down to the card very slowly and gave you exactly the card that we stopped at. This is a prediction. So only now am I filling in the gaps for you to understand what's happened so far. But the, the order in which I present information to you is very important so that I can kind of switch on and off your levels of scrutiny when you think things are important or whether you think they're, they're not. So I can try to make the unimportant things seem really important and make the really important things seem unimportant. And that's a huge uh, kind of boon that magicians have that you don't know what's going to happen yet in terms of manipulating your attention. And then we can pick, do we want to manipulate your attention by making you look over here? Do we want to use inattentional blindness? So we're going to rely on change blindness, a conditioning, or a whole host of other methods that are at our disposal. But the context uh, that in which misdirection operates is almost as important as the misdirection itself. You have no idea how important that is about due diligence. We're going to finish up with some quick questions. How do you relax? As a card-carrying millennial, I uh, watch a lot of YouTube. I think that's, that's a big part of it. Just because I make YouTube videos, I consume a lot of YouTube content. But truly, truly, the way I primarily relax is I shuffle a deck of cards. It is actually unusual that I'm having a conversation and I'm not shuffling constantly during the conversation. Um, it's something that doesn't require, requires like almost 0% of my brain, or at least that's what it feels like. I'm sure that's not actually true, but doesn't require my attention to shuffle and practice and manipulate cards. Another hobby of mine is photography, something I'm into and I, I do from time to time. So I find that relaxing as well. What music do you listen to? I'd say a, a big variety. I grew up playing violin and always loved chamber music. Uh, I don't play violin anymore. So <clears throat> on one hand, I really like, uh, like, chamber, like Baroque and uh, Romantic period chamber music, Schumann, Schubert, Beethoven, Bach, et cetera. Um, you know, string quartets, piano trios. Also, I really love like indie rock um, and the classics like the Beatles or whatever can't go wrong. So I have a pretty broad taste in music, I'd say, um, but, you know, kind of whatever strikes my fancy that day. I actually do ask this question of a lot of people, but you are the first magician I've ever asked this question to. So I will just phrase it the way I normally do, which is if you could magically whisper one fact or belief into everyone's ear, what would it be? What I would whisper would be different depending on the day. But based on everything we've talked about, I'd maybe something along the lines of, as a human being with a human brain, it's very easy or somewhat easy for us to recognize or think we recognize self-deception in others. But it is very hard to recognize it in ourselves, to turn that lens inward. And doing so is a very important trait, not just in the sense of, introspection for its own sake, but understanding that 
you are probably wrong about at least one or two or many things. And that if you, you carry around your opinions and ideas in a little bread basket instead of as part of your identity, much easier to take out an old belief and put in a new one when you realize you may have been mistaken. So I guess the fact what I'd whisper is, you know, it's in, try to recognize self-deception in others and most importantly in yourself so that you can more easily exchange opinions and beliefs, hopefully by holding those outside your identity and ego rather than within them. Thank you. You've been listening to Daniel Roy, card manipulator and magician par excellence. As you can tell, he's fascinating enough when you can't see him perform. Do yourself a favor and do watch his YouTube. The video on 10 levels of sleight of hand has had 3 million people enjoy it. And while you watch, think about what self-deception you might have in making your investment decisions. Daniel's video is not labeled as investment advice, but I think it's probably better investment advice than you'll get from a lot of the ones that are. Dan, thank you. Of course. Thank you so much. This is a real blast. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com. <laughs>